Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. This week on Forward. What is the first lady of China doing living in Berkeley, California in the middle of, of the Second World War? So I spun this whole mystery out of that. And I, I, uh, the part that was really fun for me that was more like being a lawyer is the research that went into learning about the history of the Bay Area during that time. I wrote that Tiger Mom memoir, the first two thirds of it, in three months. It was just supposed to be this fun thing. My younger daughter had rebelled. Um, and honestly, I just thought it was going to be funny. It is my pleasure to welcome to the podcast Yale Law Professor. Multi-time best-selling author, public intellectual, and now novelist, author of the brand new novel, The Golden Gate, Amy Chua. Welcome, Amy. Thank you for having me, Andrew. Holy cow, Amy. I've admired your work for a long time. I'm so glad now that uh, we've um, actually gotten to know each other in person in real life, which is a, a very exciting thing. I know. Most people, when they hear your name, and I hope this doesn't, you know, surprise you at all. They might think, who is that? Who is that? And then they think, Tiger Mob. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Well, I mean, you have a very multi-pronged legacy, which, which we'll get into for sure. Um, but were you surprised by what accord that book struck? <laughs> oh, my gosh. I was completely unprepared. And people don't believe that. You know, I um, this is now like 11, no, 12 years ago. I wrote that in 2011. And all my other books, my foreign policy books, my books on political tribalism, um, each of those books took me like three or four years to write. I wrote that Tiger Mom memoir, the first two-thirds of it, in three months. It was just supposed (laughs) to be this fun thing. My younger daughter had rebelled. um, And honestly, I just thought it was going to be funny. (laughs) and I think a lot of people didn't quite realize it was even a whole book. You know, it got excerpted the most um, provocative parts. And I think a lot of people just thought it was a Wall Street Journal article. They had slapped the headline on it, something like, why Chinese mothers are superior or something. You know? um, and it just uh, triggered this global firestorm. And I didn't have social media. You know, I mean, I didn't have, I, had, I was completely unprepared for it. I'd never been on TV before. Um, so it was, it was a crazy ride. Well, well, certainly I remember that period, <laughs> even, even, even as like just a, an ordinary civilian being like, huh. And, and obviously, uh, being, um, Asian American myself, I was like, oh, um, some of it felt, uh, f- familiar, but 
to your point, I mean, you've had a number of major intellectual contributions over the last number of years. I, I just picked up at a random airport bookstore uh, your book on uh, triple threat uh, with your with your husband Jed. Yep. Um, triple package. Groups, yeah. Triple package. Thank you. Yep. Uh, why certain groups um, seem to succeed at at uh, various levels. And I thought I read it, and I thought to myself, "Wow, this is very interesting and provocative stuff." Um, and, and you've kind of made it a habit of tackling things that other people shy away from, uh, I suppose. <laughs> like, like you're—I feel like you're like a commenter on unspoken truths. Yeah, you know, each of my books, I actually don't think that if you read it from cover to cover, should be controversial in any way. That book was called The Triple Package, um, The Rise and Fall of Cultural Groups in America. And it does talk about what, how and why um, certain groups at any given point in history in the United States seem to be outperforming others. But like right off the bat, it says, you know, we figured out that it's not genetic, that it's nothing static, that anybody can access it. So why it kind of got taken to be controversial. The thesis of that book was that... Um, that these three qualities in certain groups, the first is what we called, uh, maybe provocatively, a superiority complex, which is like a sense of being special or a sense of exceptionalism, um, like the Jews being the chosen people or the Mormons or... I don't know if you ever got this, like in a lot of Chinese families, there's a sense of we're from the oldest civilization, you know, this great uh, middle kingdom. But coupled with that first trait, we discovered that a second trait is indispensable, and that's seemingly the opposite, and that is a sense of deep insecurity. Um, and it's those two things combined, the sense of exceptionalism, that you're special in some way, um, which a parent could instill in you. Um, I remember Sonia Sotomayor told me she identified with this. Um, but that coupled with insecurity is what creates drive. It makes people feel, you know, I'm not being respected enough. I need to show everybody. And I, I think that you'll see that a lot of immigrants groups uh, tend to outperform other groups. And that's often because they are outsiders. They have a sense of insecurity. Um, and the third trait is just um, impulse control, which is kind of self-discipline. So, yeah, we had a, with it, had a fun time with that book. Um, and it applies to individuals and corporations and universities, um, not, not, just, uh, not just cultural groups in America. Yeah, I, I thought of it as a chip on the shoulder. Um, yes, but, we even yeah, use that uh, term. Yeah, yeah, you, you do. And uh, reading the book did feel familiar uh, in various ways. Um, I, I think that your observation that reading a book cover to cover, you're like, sure. <laughs> and then and then if you take out uh, this element or that element, uh, that then, uh, you know, it can become sensationalized or, or overly dramatized. I think you are such a triple package individual, Andrew. <laughs> I think oh. you're a perfect example. I mean that in a really good way. <laughs> Well, thank you. I mean, for, coming from you, that's the <laughs> highest of compliments. Uh, also, I, I have um, met your daughters, however, briefly, and whatever you did seemed to have worked swimmingly. So <laughs> it should, it should be very, 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 very proud. I mean, they're, they're uh, incredibly uh, impressive individuals. So political tribes, group instinct, and the fate of nations. Um, what, what's fascinating here is that you applied this both internationally and domestically, where you said, look, the U.S. seems to have these blind spots when it comes to tribalism, uh, where you think that 
um, people are going to see things in ideological terms. For example, capitalism versus communism or democracy versus uh, autocracy, when really uh, typically a society is just made up of a couple of tribes who may, may or may not like each other. Uh, and one example is yeah. uh, Sunnis and Shias in a place like Iraq. Um, and America seems to omit that particular dynamic when it, it comes and has these large-scale interventions, sometimes, uh, unfortunately, quite tragically. Yeah, you know, I, I actually say that um, the reason for our biggest foreign policy disasters in the last 50 years, from Vietnam to Afghanistan to Iraq, all come from the fact that we know so little about the groups, group dynamics or the you know tribal affiliations that matter most to the people that we're supposedly trying to help. Um, and I, this is an earlier book I wrote, World on Fire, but I did actually call the Iraq dynamic uh, exactly correctly. A lot of people at that time, including friends of mine like Noah Feldman, said, look, we're going to put in elections and the Sunnis and Shias and, you know, with Kurds are all going to come together. And I was saying, no, there's this concept of a market dominant minority. That is a, when you have a situation where a small, um, you know, group like, say, the Sunnis that are only about 14% of the population are viewed as having controlled the levers of power for so long, economic power, maybe political power. Then if you do overnight democracy, majority rule can actually be very destabilizing because guess what? Suddenly given the vote, the new majority, in this case the Shias, they're not necessarily going to vote for moderate you know, friendly policies, but instead they're going to vote for revenge, and that's exactly what happened. Um, so I, you know, I, I said that's what happened in Vietnam too, and yeah, so that's the kind of international component of it, and I do apply that to the United States as well. Imagine running for president and wanting to share what you experienced in a way that's entertaining, edifying, and maybe even a little bit scary. That's The Last Election, out in bookstores now, a novel about an independent presidential candidate, a journalist with a massive story, and what the heck could be our next slash last election. Check it out at andrewyang.com. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy in that I knew if you're going to spend eight hours doing something, you should probably invest in doing it right. That's why I love Helix Sleep, which will send a mattress to your door that's made just for you. You take the Helix Sleep quiz and you get matched with a mattress based upon whether you want it to be soft, medium, firm, how you sleep, other variables, and then voila, it gets sent to your door and you can try it for up to 100 nights and send it back. They have a 10 plus year warranty because they believe in their product so much. I do too, my kids do too. They actually seek out this mattress even though it was designed not for them. <laughs> That's how good this product is. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple chiropractors and doctors because they think it'll make you healthier. Don't take my word for it. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang and use code helixpartner20. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now.
Yeah, d- domestically, you said, look, hey, the educated elite is, believe it or not, a tribe. <laughs> kind of, you know, maybe even takes on various tribal uh, instincts and behaviors. And that tribe facilitated uh, the rise of Trump in, in a way because it has blind spots um, when it, it came to some of Trump's appeal. Uh, it There ended up being this us versus them dynamic um, that continues to this day in many ways. Um, and you see it where there are folks who are of a particular uh, educated class who just don't seem to um, be able to understand that folks of another class or educational background might have a completely different perspective. And that perspective may be something they actually hold to very, very strongly. And they they think is as, as legitimate, legitimate as your point of view. Uh, and you wrote this back in 2018. Um, how have uh, things played out since then? And what was the, your, the reaction to your argument? Yeah. You know, Andrew, this is where you're your projects and your work and your party are so aligned. I mean, just coincidentally, um, back in 2018, uh, so I was actually one of the people that uh, uh, predicted the Trump election. And, um, you know, Yale Law School is, it's an amazing place. The people are brilliant and very much uh, at the time involved with Hillary Clinton's campaign. But I could see at the time that there were some serious blind spots. Um, and as we now all know, you know, those very states like Pens- whatever, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, um, that, that whole block of uh, states that, um, uh, you know, the Democrats weren't really paying attention to. They actually went to Donald Trump that year. And so it's very similar to what I was talking about with developing countries. Um, one of the things I say in my books is that the United States, we've had a lot of problems, but we've never had this problem of a market-dominant minority. That is, a, a, a little ethnic group, like the Chinese in Indonesia, or the whites in South Africa, um, or even the lighter-skinned Europeanized elites in Venezuela that are viewed as controlling the economy um, and being very arrogant and insular and not caring about the rest of the country. Um, You know, the United States, we've always just had a lot of mobility, and there's no one ethnic group, not Asians, not Jews. They they, they may be disproportionately successful, but they don't actually control 70% of the economy. But what I wrote in this recent book is that I'm worried that just in the last uh, five to ten years, we're seeing the emergence of our own very idiosyncratic form of a market-dominant minority in the United States. And this is the group that you refer to, that sometimes called cosmopolitan elites, sometimes called coastal elites. Um, and the irony is, this is these are all my friends. I, I'm in this category myself. You know, I think people who teach at Columbia or NYU or Harvard or Yale or work on Wall Street or Hollywood, you know, a lot of the central figures in D.C., we view ourselves as so tolerant and open-minded and cosmopolitan. The, you know, it's, it's the other side that's intolerant. Um, and one of the provocative things I say in political tribes is we don't realize how, you know, coastal elites don't realize how insular and actually... Um, uh, perceived as arrogant, they, they, they come off as to the rest of the country. You know, um, coastal elites, they actually pretty much 
you know, they don't, they're not an ethnic group, but they dress very similarly. They send their kids to the same schools. They eat the same foods. They like the same aesthetics. They vacation in the same places. And it is, in fact, this is something that you've really, you know, been so important in. Um, it is, in fact, the case that wealth in this country is incredibly concentrated on our two coasts. Uh, and, and coast elites do actually dominate and control many of the same sectors that market dominant minorities like the Chinese in the Philippines um, or the Lebanese and West Africa control, for example, Wall Street or Silicon Valley, the Ivy League, uh, you know, uh, I mean, just, you know, Washington in many ways. So, so yes, yeah, so what I predicted in that book was that I actually predicted that we were going to see in the election of 2016 uh, the rise of demagogues that would actually play on this and say, hey, you know, this country is being controlled by a small number of people who live on the coast who don't care about real Americans. So we need to make America great again. We need to take back the country. And that kind of rhetoric is something that we've seen actually more commonly in developing countries like Robert Mugabe in Zimbabwe or Hugo Chavez in, in Venezuela. So the thesis of political tribalism was a little scary. It was that for the first time in all of U.S. history, we're starting to see um, certain very specific kinds of destructive ethno and ethno-nationalist kinds of political dynamics that are much more common in developing countries than, you know, previously the United States. Do you know Barbara Walter, the political scientist? She wrote something similar uh, in her book. Uh, I think it was called How Civil Wars Start. I've heard of it. Haven't read it yet. No. You guys would probably get along. <laughs> but she, what she did is she went into various developing countries and she saw these patterns that you're describing. Uh, and there was a very consistent pattern around someone appealing to uh, nativism and a certain group that I think even had a technical term. Um, I think it was called, oh my gosh, Barbara, I'm sorry, I'm going to mess this up. But it's, uh, I, I think it was something like children of the earth <laughs> or, or, or something very, very specific sounding that you read, read it. And I was like, children oh. of the earth or whatever the heck it was. Do you, uh, do you know what I'm talking Lumi about? Pucha. Yes. I think that's sons of the soil. It is something like that. Sons that, of the soil. Like, that was it. it. Thank you, Amy. Yep. It was sons of the soil. Yeah. In Malaysia, because the idea is like, we're the real people. We're the yeah. people who were originally here. And, you know, in a funny way, President Donald Trump's kind of make America great again. Let's take back our country away from, you know, the, 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 the Chinese and the Mexicans um, it is tapping into a similar dynamic, like this idea that there are real Americans um, who are, you know, and, and a lot of was very effective, actually, in this country saying, you know what, these elites, they care more about the poor in Africa um, the know, Richmond, North of Richmond song. I mean, you hear that, you see that yes. and think, yes, Absolutely. I mean, it strikes the same chord. Though he himself is not, you know, he wants nothing to do with the uh, tribalism. Uh, yeah, uh, he's cool. He's like, I'm really not taking sides here. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. Um, but of course, you know, America being what it is today, um, one side tried to claim it. Um, I, and I'm happy to say at least, like some people on the other side saw it as what it was, which struck me as just a deep, uh, popular appeal, which is, look, man, I mean, you know, things aren't going our way. <laughs> and, yeah. the, and the natural thing is to blame someone. And so the, the image of Richmond, North of Richmond was very evocative. Yeah, totally. And he wasn't like some famous pop singer. I mean, I, you know, I, I watched him many times. He really sounds like an authentic guy, you know. 
This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Why let big tech companies see everything you're doing online when you can just use ExpressVPN and then be footloose and fancy free? Plus, you get access to exclusive content by beaming in to another market. What do I mean? Let's say you have Netflix and you missed the show Snowpiercer. By the way, I loved that movie. And you want to watch the TV series, not available in the US on Netflix, but if you beam into the UK or someplace else, then there's Snowpiercer on your Netflix. See how it works? This is a way you can get more from what you're already spending on streamers, plus totally anonymous online, plus you can do it by pushing one button anywhere you are. It's why I love ExpressVPN. It's like a set it and forget it. So be smart. Stop paying full price for streaming services and only getting access to a fraction of their content. Get your money's worth at expressvpn.com yang. Don't forget to use my link at expressvpn.com yang to get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. So you've taught some folks uh, who've gone on to become uh, very, very uh, prominent figures in various ways. And I just had a question for you. Um, So I I was at a party and then someone came up to me um, who I knew by reputation and they knew me by reputation. And they said to me, hey, um, like, I I don't know you. I just know all of like the um, stuff I've seen from and about you. Uh, in various media, but I tend to throw all that stuff out because I, I know the media is just a bunch of like uh, distortions and funhouse mirrors. So very pleased to meet you and just want to be able to to meet you as an actual human. Um, I love now, that. Uh, yeah, no, it was very, I was like, oh, thank you. I mean, it did make me think it's like, oh shit, like, uh, like are people trapping me <laughs> what in are the you media? <laughs> like, like, what are you, what are you ignoring here? But yeah, I've uh, been there. <laughs> yeah, we could talk about that. Um, but, but for you, you must have at this point, half a dozen to a dozen former students who are in the public eye in various ways. And then people probably come to you and figure, Hey, what's up with this person? What's up with that person? Uh, how much does the depiction in the media line up with the human being or not line up in your experience? Pretty terribly, honestly, to support <laughs> your so, you know, I'm really proud of, um, of my students who range from extreme left to extreme right. So just to give you two examples, uh, Ronan Farrow, who broke the whole Me Too movement, um, was wow. my former student and pretty much wrote every paper with me. And we were always very close. Um, and as everybody knows, uh, J.D. Vance, at the other uh, extreme author of Hillbilly Elegy, was also my student. Um, and we're also very close. And I, it's so funny. Like I remember both those guys as people who were just lost. And that's why they came to me. I tend to mentor people who are a little bit outsiders, probably just because of who I am. You know, I think I, any kind of outsider. I mean, there's so many ways of being an outsider. And sure. I, you, and um, JD just honestly now, gosh, he's a senator and there's so much stuff about him. And it's unrecognizable for me. Like I remember him, he came and he kind of stuck out. He was dressed differently than everybody else, sounded a little different, was unusually tall. Um, and I remember in the first week of school, he, he, he was 
practically wanted to drop out. He just felt like everything he said uh, just sounded stupid. And we really bonded. Um, at one point, he was he really was going to drop out. It was actually when his girlfriend, um, now wife, uh, uh, wanted to take a break. And he's like, I, you know, so I just think of these guys as just sincere, authentic, real, warm people. Um, and now that they're so successful, I, what I read about them in the press is, it's totally a caricature, first of all. Again, if you, you know, would literally take every single thing these people have said, it would not add up to that. And same with Ronan Farrow. He came in very young. Uh, he went to Bard, so I think he was like 16 or something when he started law school. And, what? you know, yes, no, he was seriously, maybe he was 18, but he had skipped all these years. He was like a prodigy. And absolutely brilliant, but same thing. Like now he's such a celebrity and, you know, does these amazing things. But at the time, he was a little bit of a misfit. He had had, he came in in crutches because he had had some, something happened in, when he was in Africa. So his first day of school, he's five years younger than everybody else, and he comes in on two crutches. And um, so I remember these people warmly, and we're still friends. We're still friends. Um, uh, you know, Vivek Ramaswamy is another one. I didn't teach him, but he's another one of our former students that we're close to. So I try to keep the politics out of it. Every time something comes up, I'm the press calls me and asks me to denounce these people or, you know, um, and I just I just won't do it. You know, I think that makes some people mad, but um, but it's just it's just my policy. I'm not going to ever trash talk any former students. I would say it's a fine policy myself. I mean, it, it would uh, allow folks to actually get to know you as their professor and mentor without thinking years later, they're going to get a call. <laughs> yes, gonna get a call. On it's one of the best parts of my job. I, I'm not like a great legal theorist, but I do love mentoring people who feel like they might want to drop out of law school because that's kind of how I felt. <laughs> well, uh, well, my big jam is trying to talk people out of going to law school. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> though, though, you know, Yale is somewhat special. I mean, there's a joke in legal circles that, you know, if you don't want to actually be a lawyer, uh, go to Yale. Uh, you know, There is you some could, truth to that. <laughs> you know, I mean, if you could actually get in, which I did not. Um, so... <laughs> So I, I had a, a a question on on this. Like there was like a very very strange controversy at Yale around your mentoring students. Like there was something where, where it somehow got painted in a negative light. And to this day, like I, I just remember this. What struck me, frankly, is a bit of a smear job um, that didn't fully make sense. <laughs> it was, but 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 it'd be one reason why if if you were you, like your natural inclination is like, look, I'm not gonna like join in a pylon because uh, I, I think you might have actually experienced a pylon yourself for some reason. Oh, completely. Now, anytime it's human nature, I'll read about anybody, you know, Kate Middleton or, or just anything. And it, it's your natural instinct is like, it's just fun to gossip and to imagine the worst. But I have so changed. Like I just take everything with a grain of salt, no matter what it is. Um, that thing was, oh gosh, it was like three years ago and it blew over. I think it was called Dinner Party Gate or something. And it was in the middle of COVID. And honestly, Andrew, now I think that a lot of it had to do with the pandemic. People were cooped up. It was the first year where students, instead of the first year students getting to meet in small groups and have picnics and go out, everybody was on Zoom. <laughs> and so, you know, you couldn't make friends. You couldn't really meet your professors in uh in person. And somehow this rumor started that I was having dinner parties with, I think, federal judges and a, a C 
secret group of students, drunken dinner parties. This was so crazy. It was so surreal. It was, it was literally like Kafka-esque, you know. Um, but, and I was very upset at the time, and I, it got covered because of who I am. It was like, how is this stupid thing supposed, why does it make the New Yorker and the New York Times, you know? Um, but in the end, I kind of believe in the system. I mean, I, I feel like I was vindicated. You have university looked into it thoroughly and found absolutely no basis for any of these crazy things. And everything's back to normal now, you know, and I love my students. I have these giant classes. So, you know, if you just, this is the tiger uh, parenting part. You know, my parents, the one thing is they said, just push through, just don't give up, just push through. (laughs) It'll get better. So we have something else in common, though you're better at um, probably both of them. Um, but after writing five nonfiction books, some of which were international bestsellers, now you've written your first novel, The Same Golden with Game. with you. Yours is so much more exciting. <laughs> well, mine is darker. Though yours gets... It eh, is darker. Yours, yeah, my, 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 mine's a little bit more... Oh, it's so relevant. No, no, mine's straightforward, whereas yours is actually literary. That's <laughs> the way I would describe yours. It's like, oh, wow, Amy wrote like a piece of literature, which I found very, very impressive and sophisticated. Thank you. I, you know, I, um, I don't think people knew this about me, but when I was little, I, uh, well, you know, I had very strict parents, and so we weren't allowed a, a huge amount of social freedom. So I was a huge bookworm. And my favorite thing was to go to the public library. I went to public schools, carry home all these books, and they were actually always novels, and in particular, always murder mysteries. You know, I read every single Agatha Christie. Um, so it was my first love, and I tried to write a, a novel, uh, what I was trying to get out of Wall Street. This is to your point. I, I graduated from law school, and I was like, why did I do this? <laughs> I found myself in corporate law, not good at it, bored by it, but also just not talented at it. So I tried to write a novel back then, and I couldn't quite pull it together. Um, and yes, uh, it was actually during COVID that I finally had time. A, a plot just hit me. Um, and it's so funny, Andrew, the coincidence, right? Because we were thinking about the political tribalism issues at exactly the same time. I still remember getting an email from you right around 2016, 17, uh, or maybe 2015, thinking about the same issues. And then when I found out that your novel, that you wrote, had written a novel, and that it, it's coming out a week before mine, I'm like, this guy's always ahead of me. <laughs> or we're just on the same wavelength. Uh, yes, though... that too. <laughs> So this plot hit you during COVID. Uh, Again, I think it's a very impressive, sophisticated uh, piece of literature. And I, you know, I I use that term deliberately, Um, but it it interweaves uh, family, geopolitics, race, California history. um, uh, And it, that there are, there there are very um, timely themes around, uh, I suppose, like a, a country that is um, in the throes of a conflict and thus uh, has some um, mistreatment of, of various uh, groups within it, um, which unfortunately is something that we kind of sense like might become relevant <laughs> today. Yeah. Uh, so, in, so in your case, um, you got hit by this plot. Uh, how did you go about saying, you know what, I'm actually going to to write this novel? There's a lot of research involved in your novel, clearly. 
Yes, and lawyer stuff. So the, the book is a historical murder thriller set in the San Francisco Bay Area in 1944. Um, and the book opens with the grandmother from one of San Francisco's oldest families being told by the district attorney that one of her three granddaughters is a murderer, and they don't know which one. So that's the thing that hit me. I, I came up with this idea of a grandmother who's told that one of her three um, granddaughters is the murderer, and I kind of thought of the twist, which I won't give away, uh, a bunch of twists. Um, and then I was actually in my parents' house. So so I actually, you know, my parents are American dream exemplars. Like, I grew up in a very small house in a place called El Cerrito in the Bay Area. I went to public high schools. Um, but by the time I went to college, my parents had moved to another house in the Berkeley Hills. And it turns out that that house was where Madame Chiang Kai-shek, the former first lady of China, lived in 1943 to 1944, for reasons to this day nobody knows. What is the first lady of China doing living in Berkeley, California, in the middle of, of the Second World War? So I spun this whole um, mystery out of that, and I, I, uh, the part that was really fun for me that was more like being a lawyer is the research that went into learning about the history of the Bay Area during that time. So obviously it was the time of the Japanese internment, which I think has, you know, in some ways a lot of parallels to our uh, to today. There was a lot of class conflict. There were a lot of poor whites that had come from the Dust Bowl. Um, African-Americans actually came in for the first time, I did not know that, uh, to, to, to build these ships, all these shipyards, because after Pearl Harbor, uh, we didn't have a Navy anymore. So the Bay Area was transformed into literally the largest shipbuilding center in, in history. And I never knew any of this growing up in the Bay Area. Uh, it, just about 20 years before that, they had deported, forcibly deported, you know, maybe a million um, people back to Mexico. So there were just a lot of themes that are parallel in some ways to what's happening in America right now. But, you know, because it was a, it was a long time ago, it was just easier and more less less stressful to write about. It, it, it's, it's a backdrop uh, that raises a lot of the same issues that we have today. But first and foremost, it's supposed to be an entertaining thriller, yeah. you know, a big whodunit. Well, it succeeds on the, uh, the level of entertainment, and I learned a lot. Uh, you know that my, my parents met at UC Berkeley uh, in the 60s. I didn't know that. Oh, my God. Um, and, and so, and my brother's named after the Lawrence Hall of Science, um, so, so we, we joke, my parents got busy there though. I'm sure they didn't. Um, but uh, whenever we're in town, we bring my kids to the Lawrence hall of science and be like, look, <laughs> you know, like, this is your uncle's named after. Um, so I, I felt a little bit of an, a kinship with the, um, some of the historical events, even though my parents got there later. <laughs> Yeah, did you know that Berkeley is so famously liberal right now, but that whole neighborhood, and I think they might still exist today, um, all of the houses have these racial covenants in them. Um, so somebody had to intervene, like technically no Chinese people, no non-whites could live in Berkeley, certainly in the Berkeley Hills. And Madame Chiang Kai-shek had to get some rich banker friend from Wells Fargo to, to, to help. So so there's just a lot of um, really, and there are all these interesting characters too. Um there's this woman named Mom Chung, and how could I not know this, right? She's like the first Chinese-American uh, woman doctor in the United States, and she was such a character. She would have these soirees um, that 
John Wayne and Ronald Reagan and all these Hollywood stars would come. And wow. she was probably lesbian. You know, she, she, she dressed like a man and um, never married. At her funeral, Admiral Nimitz was one of her pallbearers. Like, it's like this crazy celebrity figure who lived in San Francisco and was years ahead of her time, attended a lot of bohemian nightclubs. Um, so it was fun learning about people like her and this guy, August Vollmer, who, again, from Berkeley, California, he was the founder of American policing. You know, all these things that we teach people in law school, you know, all the techniques, finger printing and two-way mirrors or one-way mirrors. Um, all of that was in Berkeley, California, like up the street from where my parents live. So that was a really fun piece of, you know, research and investigative work. So after you finished the novel, actually, and you know, this is just an insidery thing maybe, but it might be interesting. Um, so you're known for writing, uh, best-selling nonfiction books. Um, how did your agent respond to the fact, hey, I've got a novel, and then <laughs> was, was it... Uh, and, and do you feel, too, and this is one of the jokes I told, I was at a party with some famous people, um, and there was a, a person who had their first book coming out, and I said, you know what you can't get away with saying? Hey, I wrote this book, and it's just a casual thing, and you know, you should check it out, because, <laughs> because like a book actually takes like a significant investment uh, of, of time and energy. It becomes personal pretty quickly. Uh, and, and so for you, is there like some uh, nervousness around this being your first foray into fiction? Like, do you have other stories that have hit you even since the time that you finished this book? Because that does happen to my creative and novelist friends where they all, all of a sudden start getting pelted with new stories and characters. Yeah. Well, first of all, my agent basically punted me. She was like, I don't represent, what? You know, what are you doing now? Um, and she introduced me to a different agent. So I'm represented by somebody different for just for this novel. And yes, I'm terrified. And I actually don't have like, I'm not, gosh, maybe this is defensive, but I'm, I don't have um, crazy expectations. I felt like I wanted to prove it to myself. I I wanted to make it all work. So as you know, writing a thriller, it has to come together. Like you can't cheat. Like you have, you have to make a timeline. The facts have to fit together. And especially if it's like a mystery, when you reveal it, you know, your readers are going to be mad if, if the clues aren't all there. Like it has to, it has to be plausible, but you also have to keep it from the readers. So for me, a lot of the analytics was very similar in some ways to being a lawyer. Like I, how do I, um, keep everything straight, but also hide the ball, but piece it all together like a puzzle. So I, that part I really liked. I mostly just want this to be a really fast-paced, fun, talk about fast-paced. I, I, I could not put your book down. I was just flipping. That That takes skill. Um, and so I would like to try to write a different one. I do have an idea, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. Like, you know, let's see what happens to this one first. Um, oh, well, and that, 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 that is one of the things that happens to us, Amy, is the same way. <laughs> it's like, I'm like, oh, I kind of like to do something else in this space. It's like, oh, I have to wait and see what, 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 what happens with this one. Though as you say it out loud, I think The Golden Gate would make a fantastic uh, mini-series, uh, limited series, because it is I very, very... So intricately plotted and smart you're i mean people probably can tell i mean you're you're a brilliant human and a brilliant writer and having uh that intellect applied to plotting uh was, was something of a joy 
just because one of the most frustrating things is when it doesn't hold up. <laughs> you know, it's like, um, the, so sorry, anyone who's associated with this, but like certain TV shows pop to mind for me where it's like, you know, that, that TV show didn't hold up, uh, down the stretch. And then you're or, like, or oh, the killer. Or the killer is somebody that you just meet at the last second. Like, that's not fair. You know, you're, you're, if it's like a big mystery thing, you're wondering which of the 10 people did it. It can't just be a stranger off the street that comes on at the last second. So, but thank yeah, it you. has to, it has to land. And the great yeah. thing for you, for, for the reader, uh, with, with your book is you actually feel like you're in good hands. <laughs> like, like you're, oh, like you're not, you don't you. get, you don't get, you don't feel that, that, uh, um, sense of being cheated, what you get when like it, it doesn't hold up. And in your case, it holds up. So well, I got to uh, tell know. you, my agents, I have really good agents. And um, this was, uh, so this took me, you know, during COVID, right, like maybe two years. But at one point I, um, I turned in this manuscript and they gave me all these great comments about what didn't work. So then I, you know, being myself, worked really, really hard and, you know, sent back something, you know, like a month later. Um, there was a long silence, and then my agent called me and said, okay, we read this, and um, you've made it worse. <laughs> and they're like, you are, you know, uh, you always, we, we like you a lot, but you always have to be that A student, and fiction's a little different. Sometimes you need to let it percolate and think and let yourself be artistic. So my agent actually said, I'm not, on the next round, I'm not going to read this for eight months. Oh my God, Andrew, this almost killed me, but I'm so impatient. <laughs> She's like, I really want you to think about this. And so, so the process was a learning one for me too. Like then I, she's like, I want you to read some novels and just like, you know, switch your mentality away from foreign policy books. Um, so it worked in the end, but I, I had to have a, I, I, I made a lot of mistakes and I got some, I, I got some good help. Well, I dare say, Amy, I think you might've unlocked a different part of your brain and uh, I, for one, hope that that continues, that that part of your brain actually gives rise to um, more intelligent, well-crafted stories filled with vibrant characters. Um, yeah, like I, I actually would love to see uh, the Golden Gate miniseries, uh, and I can imagine um, various actors vying for various parts. <laughs> It'd be great. Uh, and and it, it is like a different journey. I will say on like my side, I mean, I, I had a co-author who's who went through a lot of the um, process and pains that that you're describing. So I cannot lay claim to have gone through the, the similar process, but it really is such a different. It's like a different writing style, uh, and and because yes. it's a different writing style, it's like a different brain wiring. Uh, totally. And, yeah. And and so for like I, I just give you so much credit for uh, accessing new brain wiring in this way. Yeah, thank you. I mean, it, it's it does. You're right. You have to practice your brain, right? Because you're. I I keep wanting to. Um, I don't know. Like I, it, it's weird in a way. If you get good at this, you have to much more freedom in writing fiction. Like you could just invent. But you know, at the very beginning. I had to draw on autobiographical things or people I know. Like it's actually really a challenge just to invent a character out of out of nothing, you know. So, um, so yeah, I think we probably went through a lot of the same learning curve. Yeah, what's funny is when you write nonfiction, you're you're always fastidious about like, well, like have to make sure that's factually accurate. Have to make sure this, and then the fictional element is like, well, have to make sure this person seems real and like, and that whatever detail I include is actually pretty accurate. 
And yeah. the easiest way to do that is to base it on an actual human. <laughs> you can just point to that person and be like, no, right. look, like they're, they're, they're right there. And you better pick an interesting one. <laughs> well, people should definitely check out The Golden Gate if they are into any form of fiction, uh, particularly murder mysteries. Uh, how can people keep up with you and your work, Amy? Because you're a bit of a polymath and you, you cover lots of different areas. Well, maybe I'll see you on book tour. I mean, I'm going to be doing, I'm going on my three-week book tour and people can always pick it up on Amazon or, uh, oh, my website, uh, amychua.com. Um, and yeah, you know, it, it's really fun. I hope I hope you and I end up on the same, maybe we'll see each other because our books are coming out almost at the exact same time. <laughs> Uh, Amy, I'll make a point of it. I'm going to show up to one of your events and then have you sign a copy uh, for <laughs> for me and Evelyn. AmyChua.com, The Golden Gate, the novel. You can check out all of her other books too um, because she's a brilliant woman with a whole lot of insight to offer around the world. It, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, Amy, uh, please keep us posted and uh, can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you, Andrew. You're an inspiration and a good friend and good luck with your book too. Thanks for having me. 